Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. Kobus van Staden, who's normally with me every week, is away this week and next week traveling the world to academic conferences in exotic locales. I think this week he is in Buenos Aires, Argentina. You know, it's really one of the great perks of being a professor or in the academic world is that you get those long breaks. Even though you don't make a lot of money, you do get to go to some exciting places. And so uh, we wish Kobus uh, all the best having a great time in Argentina. Today, we're going to be revisiting an issue that is very near and dear to my heart. Uh, together with Cobus, we oversee a, a small empire on social media of 700,000 followers. And that requires us every single day to be on our LinkedIn page, where I've got about 340,000 people. We have 250,000 over on Facebook. And through those pages, we are constantly having discussions with people. And I will tell you, almost every day... Uh, the issue of China being a colonial power in Africa comes up, or a neo-colonial power, or a new imperial power in the kind of shape and form of what Europe once was to Africa. A lot of those comments come from, I will say, for the most part, from Americans, uh, disproportionately from Americans, and disproportionately also from Africans themselves, who define the China-Africa relationship largely in these older kind of paradigms of imperialism and colonialism. So it was very interesting to me a couple weeks ago when I saw an article pass uh, that, that really caught my attention, the Imperialist People's Republic of Africa. And it was written by one of our old friends of the show, Hannah Ryder. Hannah, if you recall from a couple years ago, uh, joined us when she was back as the uh, former head of policy and partnerships at the United Nations Development Program in Beijing. She's no longer with the UNDP. She's now uh, went and she's gone solo. She's founded up her own firm. She's the founder and CEO of Development Reimagined, which is a Beijing-based sustainable development consultancy. Hannah, welcome back to the show and a very good evening to you. Thank you very much, Eric. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. It's really exciting. And again, I, I, your topic of your article in Project Syndicate uh, back on July 13th really kind of struck me because, as I said, I am dealing with this issue all the time. And I feel like, you know, over the past 10 years that I've been doing the China-Africa project, the discussion for the most part just has not moved forward because you hear this discussion about China being a colonial power in Africa. Now, your article um, really lays out why you don't think China is a colonial power, and I want to get to that, but I want to start with uh, quoting you a little bit and getting your response. To label China a colonizer or a benefactor does little to help us understand the true nature of its relationship with the African continent. What is the true nature of China's relationship in Africa, in your opinion? Well, I have one word, Eric. It's complex. And I think the problem with labeling uh, China as a colonizer or as an imperialist, etc., is is twofold. First of all, it uh, diminishes the relationship to a very simple narrative. And second of all, it's actually a wrong narrative. It is a narrative which uh, it, it brings to mind... Uh, uh, Serious dominance, serious dominance, and uh, an, a relationships. Which I mean, I, I don't know if I can if I can express it better than I did in the article. Go ahead and quote yourself <laughs> from was, the article if that's easier. I mean, <laughs> it was totally. You know, colonialism is is a very has is a very long 
long process, a very long, has a very deep history. And it is, it hurts so many people. You know, people died, there were, uh, there was torture, there were people were detained uh, indefinitely, you know, even my own family. There, there were curfews, there was uh, based on skin color, so many, so many horrible aspects of colonialism. And the idea that we can suddenly transpose that and say, oh, well, you know, China, because it now has a kind of trading relationship or an investment relationship, whether it is positive or negative, is like colonialism, it's absolutely wrong. And so, you know, I felt that I had to write the article because I keep, like you, I keep getting in these conversations and, you know, I keep having to say, look, this is the wrong kind of comparison. There might be some other type of comparison which we can draw, but colonialism is absolutely not the right one. So let's talk about some of those other comparisons. And I think I want to I want to put a disclaimer out uh, for myself, and I'll, I'll let you kind of take care of yourself if this is something you need to do as well. Um, I am not going to defend the Chinese in our conversation tonight. Uh, I am not going... I, the Chinese are more than capable of defending themselves. I think what I want to do is lay out, for you and I agree on this, why China is not a colonial power in Africa. That doesn't mean it's necessarily innocent of committing other, um, you know, not violations, but other problems or other issues that come up to it. Let me run a theory by you that I, that I have bouncing around my head, and I've had it for a while now. So while China may not be a colonial power, because colonialism was really a distinct uh, political paradigm of the pre-20th century period, it, do, it does not exist anymore for the most part. We don't have traditional colonialism. If we talk about colonialism in the way the Europeans did it, which was full control of a country or a society, from religion yeah, it's to... Yeah, oppression. It's oppression. And it was yes. uh, religion, language, culture, uh, administration. Exactly. It was everything. It was comprehensive. The Chinese are by no means yes. doing that. In fact, the Chinese... Uh, you know, there's much cheaper ways of China acquiring natural resources than occupying or colonizing an, a, a country in Africa. They just go out into the global markets and buy it. Um, so, my, so, but, so while they may not be a colonial power, there is – and China for the most part does not have a colonial history. That's a very gray area because Korea and Vietnam were at some points in the history colonial – uh, the, the language is hard to find because it's not really a, an apples-to-apples apples comparison here, but there was a colonial relationship with parts of Vietnam and parts of Korea at some parts of Chinese history. But for the most part, China employed what they called a tributary state system, where they had their massive dominance, and there was a much smaller state or empire or, empire or, or some other political entity around it that China used its weight and its leverage to exact concessions out of. So when I see what China is doing in Uganda, in Kenya, in Tanzania, and in uh, uh, other smaller African countries, Angola being another one, where the, the economic relationship is so disproportionate, the amount of debt that is piling up now is so massive, it brings me to, a, to that point of, are we not in a tributary type of relationship where the sovereignty of these countries may be compromised by virtue of the wealth imbalance that now exists between the two. Well, okay, let me respond to that. First of all, I also want to, uh, it's not quite a disclaimer, but I am also not uh, trying to 
uh, kind of be a spokesperson for China. Um, what I do want to say is that it what I always want to get across is exactly what I said at the beginning, it's complex. And even talking about a tributary type system, I think, again, even that, even though it's it's a less, uh, it's not the same kind of narrative, not the same kind of uh, relationship as colonial, it still, to me, feels like, again, too simple a narrative. The relationship with every single country is different. Yes, China has an Africa policy at the government level. But on the other hand, when it's actually implementing that, and when you know businesses go out, when people go out, you know, as entrepreneurs of the informal sector and so on, they're not going out in a unified way. And I think this is something which is very clear from you know Howard French's book for those for the listeners that have read that. You know, it's not a unified, it's not a unified uh, going out. And at the same time, every single African country is also extremely different. You know, you have democracy in some, you don't have democracy in others. You have a very thriving informal sector in others. You've got a really poor informal sector. You've got a large multinational state and enterprises in some, you don't have those in others. Every single African country is very different. And so I think it's it's very difficult to say, to, to come with one narrative which fits. But what it is useful to do is what I try to do with, with the article is just to provide some real data and some real facts, uh, which then people can go away and assess on their own. Um, but I feel that much of the conversation around China-Africa tends to also just be kind of unanalytical, you know, have people gone to look at statistics around the trade relationships? When you look at the trade relationships with, you know, let's say Kenya or Kenya versus Tanzania, they're extremely different. You know, so Kenya has an actually, interestingly enough, more of a difficult issue with its trade uh, than Tanzania does. Um, at the same time, Kenya is a much bigger economy and has attracted lots more Chinese investment than Tanzania has. You know, all of these these if one looks at the facts, then you get to a, a very different kind of analysis, which takes you away very much from colonialism. It takes you also away from tributary systems and, and any kind of way of defining the relationship, in my view. So in that case, then, how do you answer the question that's often posed to me, and I, and I haven't come up with a good answer mm. yet, but I'd like to get your take on it, that if China is mm. not a colonial power in Africa, but yet it extracts mm -hmm. raw materials from from Africa. It's building infrastructure, oftentimes mine to port infrastructure, which is very similar to what European imperial powers did. It's exporting those uh, those raw materials back to China, processing, manufacturing them into finished goods, and then selling them back into Africa in the form of Huawei phones, Lenovo cars, you name it. Um, that does strike me that it has at least a, a, it may not be colonialism, but it has a a, f a smell of it, doesn't it? There is an economic relationship between China and African countries. There's political relationship too. Um, but I think what defines China's relationship with other countries differently, with 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 African countries and maybe even Caribbean countries um, differently, is that it is a it is two willing partners, right? So colonialism is oppression, and they there was one party who was absolutely not not able to do anything about that relationship and could not 
couldn't get out of it if it wanted to, for example. Whereas with China and African countries, Caribbean countries, Latin American countries, they can. These are contracts which have been entered into. Many of the infrastructure projects are not just, you know, kind of China saying, we're going to go build your bridge. No, those are tenders that have been issued by a government and the Chinese company has come and they have won the bid. Of course, there's lots of things that go on behind. Um, I'm not saying that those diff those things don't happen, nor do am I saying that they don't happen with regards to US and UK firms. Um, but there is these are projects which governments would like to happen. And the fact is, you know, we've constantly in the development world, which is the world that I've been working in for the last 15 years, the constant refrain is there is not enough finance available to support infrastructure in Africa. Africa, you know, we need to be, you know, building many more bridges, many more roads, many more trains. And who's willing to do it? You know, yes, there are Chinese companies who are willing to do it. They have the expertise because they've actually done it in their own country. Why not? So I, I think, you know, my answer to that question is... I, I, I don't think it does smell. I don't think it does smell. Okay. Um, I mean, you're framing it in, yeah. the, in the context of an economic relationship. I look at it much in, in a similar way. I think you and I you know, are very much in alignment here that uh, mm. if anything, the Chinese have been kind of riding the system of globalization more than they have been doing uh, anything that resembles imperialism and colonialism. I think the Chinese more closely resemble Goldman Sachs than they do 19th century India, uh, Britain in India. Uh, I mean, Goldman Sachs well, I, is, a, I, I is think... a predator that, uh, that, that kind of looks for profit, and that's what it's supposed to do. Uh, and I think the Chinese, in many respects, are driven uh, by similar motivations. Well, looking for profit, looking, looking for, for, for where they can find the cheapest raw materials, you know, which any profit-making firm would do. The other aspect to this is that, of course, there are some countries that China has engaged with which do have natural resources and that the main relationship is about those natural resources. But one that is changing as those natural as China itself changes its economy and the way that it's working. And two, there are also other African countries that don't have natural resources, but they still have a relationship with China. So we have to always think about those countries too and what does their relationship look like? For some reason, that doesn't get discussed. We just have this kind of, you know, typically there's this general discussion about, oh, the natural resources. Well, that's one part of the story. There's many other stories to tell. Yeah, and again, defining the relationship in purely economic terms, I think, limits what, what we're seeing in terms of the complexity. And you, you, you kind of mentioned this yeah. at the top of the program about how complex this relationship is. It's not yes. purely an economic relationship. I, I, I mentioned to people quite a bit that if Africa disappeared from China's trade balance tomorrow, uh, the Chinese wouldn't notice. It's less than 5% of the overall trade with China. Uh, Africa, for the most part, uh, is not economically vital in the same way that Europe, the United States, Japan, and uh, its Asian trading partners are. So economics alone yeah. doesn't define this relationship. Tell me a little bit more when you're talking to some of your clients and you're advising uh, international organizations on the China-Africa relationship, how do you frame the relationship beyond economics? Well, I think... Beyond economics, of course, there are you know there are different types of uh, there are different types of 
engagement from China. That's absolutely right. Um, you know, there is the foreign aid program. There is, you know, Confucius Institutes, etc. There's agricultural demonstration centers, which in some cases are part of the foreign aid program. Um, there's special economic zones which are popping up around the around the continent, and you know, those are also uh, those to some degree are not only just economically driven. Um, but what I what I do try to what I try to focus on is uh, how is is what I advise uh, what I advise clients and others to do is to really look in depth at those different uh, those different examples. Um, and so, if for example you're and to do comparative comparative studies or to to look at the comparisons across those uh, those types of engagement, I'll give you an example. So if you're looking at the agricultural demonstration centers, for example, um, and, and what Chinese engagement in the agricultural, how China has been, you know, giving out these, been taking forward these centers, those are in, it's one form of Chinese foreign aid. At the same time, it's a form of Chinese foreign aid, which in some contexts has been quite successful, in many others hasn't been successful. Um, and some of that is due to local context. Some of it is due to just a particular way of Chinese working um, and actually some uh, some problems on the Chinese side in terms of the design of that program, uh, which which need to be addressed in, in future programs. So, you know, my clients range from Chinese government ministries to the Chinese businesses, you know, actually taking forward these demonstration centers to the African African governments and African businesses who want to get, you know, agricultural machinery from uh, from from China. They it's not it's not just they can't just uh, they can't just suddenly say, they can't all say, yes, we just want agricultural demonstration centers. You know, that's not the kind of advice I'd give them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's really about looking in depth and taking data, looking at comparative studies. Uh, all of these uh, all of these aspects are really crucial. Sure. At the end of your article, uh, the imperialist People's Republic of Africa, question mark. Um, mm-hmm. I have to put the question mark in there because we don't really know. Um, you have four recommendations that you give, and you say that you're advising African governments or in, Af- in African countries that they should follow four steps. And I'd like to get your take on each of them. The first, each government should pay- prepare an in-depth China plan. What's that mean? I think it's useful to to look at uh, something that uh, Uhuru Kenyatta, uh, Kenya's president, was talking about in a Financial Times article. Uh, just recently, you know, he was saying, "Look, we we have a we have a difficulty with our trade relationship with China. We really want to address that." And I think every single African government, ideally, um, should should look at the data of what their relationship consists of. You know, if, do they have how many Confucius Institutes? Do they have how many? What is their trade balance? What is their invest? How much foreign direct investment are they getting? Um, you know, a whole range of different uh, aspects of what does Chinese, what does the Chinese footprint look like in our country right now? And then look at where do we want to be? And is it that we want 10 Confucius Institutes because we do really want, uh, we do really want to be educating our citizens and want them to all know Chinese and so on? Um, or is it, you know, do we want 
to improve our trade relationship. And that's the only thing that we really want to focus on. What they can do with that kind of a plan is actually then prioritize different issues, uh, depending on what their own sustainable development plans are. And, you know, and all government, you know, most of the governments, you know, they're all signed up to the sustainable development goals. Most of them now are publishing sustainable development plans. There's many African governments have got this framework. You ha- they have uh, a vision 2020 or 25 or 2030. All of these, you know, very clear, explicit plans. And when you compare those to what the Chinese footprint is, which is something I actually did with um, in partnership with China Africa Advisory, who are another consulting firm who I work with. Uh, very often, um, they. When you look at the the difference between the plans and what the Chinese footprint is, we did this for four countries. There is a big difference in many cases, and um, so it's about the African governments saying, "Look, we can grab this, and we want to grab this, and we want to shape it in a direction that's going to help us eliminate poverty, help us." Uh, avoid climate change uh, in the in the future. Yeah, it's interesting. I didn't think you were actually going to go there with that. I thought you were referring more to uh, what David Shambaugh, who's a very famous sinologist in Washington, D.C., he wrote in a book a couple mm-hmm. of years ago saying uh, one of the reasons why there's a, such an imbalance between China and the rest of the world is how unsophisticated countries in South America and many African countries have been towards China. They don't have Chinese Mm -hmm. speakers in their diplomatic service. They don't have sinologists who they're tapping. They're not using experts. And one of the things that he pointed out is that while these countries don't have a China plan, uh, China now has a Tanzania plan, has a Kenya plan, has a Uganda plan. Uh, And they are not looking at the continent anymore as a single entity as they may have done five or ten years ago. But it's becoming much more sophisticated Mm. now. A generation of diplomats have returned from Africa back home again are filling the desks at the Chinese foreign ministry for specialists. And so one of the imbalances that is starting to to do what I think create is a knowledge imbalance, that the Chinese are actually moving very quickly to understand the subtleties of each country, but other countries, including, I will say, my own yeah. in the United States, uh, oftentimes are unsophisticated in understanding China. I, I think that's true. I mean, I meet many embassy officials, you know, here who aren't learning Chinese, and you know, whether in the UK, whether British Chinese, British embassy officials or Rwandan embassy officials, you know, there are obviously several. Uh, there are difficulties in terms of engagement that absolutely should be addressed. But what I what I really meant is, it's not really about it's not really about that. It's not really about that. Um, that, I think, is a second step, in a sense, right? Let's move on with uh, point number two in your recommendations. Each country should seek out mm-hmm. Chinese actors that might help them carry out their China plan. So let's assume they have a China plan now. They have to go then find partners. How do they do that? Well, so, you know, this this is the other point which uh, also struck me about the, the what you just mentioned about China having China itself having a plan and, and starting to differentiate that even more. I, I I have to say across the Chinese officials who I meet and Chinese business people who I meet, I I think there is oh an idea an ideal to have that kind of a plan, but 
many of them don't. And many of them want a lot of support in improving their relationship with African countries, understanding even more about African countries. You know, yes, there are some academics who travel all the time to African countries, have gone to, you know, at least 15 and so on, and, you know, know a, a few African languages. I mean, I, I don't think I've met, I don't know if I've met any Chinese officials who know several African languages, actually. Do you? No, but I do know uh, a no. lot of African diplomats, who, um, Chinese diplomats in Africa, who speak uh, a solid French, solid Swahili, and a solid English, and solid Arabic. Right, yes, so exactly. They speak so, the main yeah. languages. So, so they can, yes, they can, absolutely. And, uh, you know, across the service, there is that. Um, but, for example, Chinese uh, businesses, many don't. Um, many no. of the people that Chinese businesses will send to African countries to be uh, managing the projects, you know, don't have those, don't have that sophisticated level of uh, of language exposure, um, nor experience necessarily. So, I think many of the Chinese businesses or uh, organisations that approach approach me and approach China Africa Advisory, what they're looking for is is support and they want facilitation. So there's that from the other side. So because there is that, there are a number of different organizations uh, who are trying to provide a matching function. And I think many, uh, many international conferences, forums, a lot of them are all about that, uh, trying to match. And half the time, I think they don't manage it. They don't get the right people in but occasionally they do. But I think that more can be done to improve the way that they do that and to improve the success rate. And But if the African countries themselves are more proactive about that in terms of, you know, if they have a plan and they say, OK, well, we do want to engage on special economic zones. We need to send our officials to China uh, to understand this better. Then that will also make a difference from that side. Um, so I, I think there is a, like I was saying, there is a, there's a real gap in terms of matching. The article is The Imperialist People's Republic of Africa, question mark. Uh, it's written by Hannah Ryder, a former head of policy and partnerships at the United Nations Development Program in China, and also the, co -fo the founder and CEO of Development Reimagined, a Beijing-based sustainable development consultancy. And because she is based in Beijing, where the internet is... Uh, uh, we do apologize for the inconsistent audio, but again, what you heard this evening was, uh, to me in my mind, you, you know, very much a counter-narrative uh, about the, the ongoing, never-ending discussion as to whether or not China is a colonial or imperial power in Africa. I think you'll hear it from me, well, you will hear it from me, and you certainly hear it from Hannah, uh, that the, that's a very simplistic way of looking at it. Uh, Hannah, thank you so much for joining us, and we wish you the best of luck with your new consultancy. Thank you very much, Eric. It's it, been wonderful. It, Thank you. And uh, if people want to follow, you know, what Development Reimagined is doing and also what you're reading and writing these days, uh, I know you're active on Twitter. What's, your, what's the best way for them to follow you? Yes, on Twitter, um, my handle is H, at HMRider. Uh, and I also have the same handle on WeChat for any of your Chinese uh, listeners, uh, very happy to engage that way too. Uh, I, I put quite a few things on my WeChat moments that are also on Twitter. And uh, and in terms of the consultancy, 
go to www.developmentreimagined.com and uh, and you'll be able to find out more about us from there. Excellent. Uh, and by the way, if uh, if Jack Ma from uh, from Alibaba and the folks from and Tony Ma from 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 Tencent WeChat get their way, WeChat will be increasingly popular in Africa and Alipay will be everywhere in uh, in Kenya. So uh, hold your uh, kind of keep a keep your eye on this space to see if these Chinese platforms actually make it out there. Uh, listen, for Kobus Venstaden, I'm Eric Olander. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show or follow China Africa News that's updated every four hours, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadenesk or Eric at Eolander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Subscribe to the China Africa podcast on iTunes or download the mobile apps for iOS, Android, or Windows Phone. Just head over to your favorite store and search for China Africa. China Africa.